0: climb halfway up, you reach halfway down, while my soul just waits in the middle, while my soul just dies, you reach halfway down, I'll climb halfway up, while my heart just splits in the middle, while my heart just dies. Welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm so thankful that you're here. Before we get started in today's episode, I wanted to make a brief appeal to your patronage. This podcast is supported completely and 100% by you. If you have in any way felt moved or challenged or impacted or enjoyed what you've heard, please consider going to our Patreon page. You can find the link in the show notes. You can also find that link at our website. Uh, can I say this at church dot com and click on the Patreon button? Your donation in any amount is so helpful, and I am greatly appreciative for it. Welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. My guest today is Jared Bias. Uh, a little bit about Jared: uh, He spent over a decade as a teaching pastor and professor near Philadelphia. Uh, in 2013, he uh, he launched the Experience Institute with a friend of his. Jared is also the co author of Genesis for Normal People with Peter Enns. His work with Peter Enns continues to today. He co hosts a podcast that I can't recommend high enough uh, The Bible for Normal People. I had a blast talking with Jared uh, about inerrancy, uh, scripture, authority. Uh, so let's do it. You see the time when he loved. Time why every scar receives a name absence sets the break and then it breaks again so jared thank you so much for for taking the time this evening to be here um, I haven't seen happy to t- join yeah so i thought it would be pertinent to give those that are unfamiliar with with you just a bit of your background a little bit of your story uh, with ending with what it is that you do now. Uh,
1: Yeah, so I'll try to keep it really short. But uh, I grew up in Texas in a Southern Baptist uh, home. And actually, it was charismatic and Southern Baptist. So my dad, um, very Southern Baptist, and my mom, very charismatic. So my grandmother was a kind of itinerant, uh, charismatic preacher. And um, yeah, and then uh, actually in high school, started going to a Presbyterian church on my own and then went to liberty university mm-hmm. as one does i guess whenever you grow up in texas southern baptist <laughs> and so uh, yeah, went to liberty but was a, i was a philosophy major and then uh, all through this time had wanted to go to westminster seminary for most of my when, when i was a teenager i wanted to go get a phd in presuppositional apologetics. I wanted to get a PhD in being able to argue really well that Christianity was right and everyone else was wrong. I was pretty pumped about that. And then I got to seminary and realized I really hated that whole idea and at the same time fell in love with the biblical text and realized that the biblical text is a lot more nuanced than being able to package it really neatly and then defend it and argue for it in some systematic way. And, um, but that felt more rich to me and more creative. And I really, it changed how I lived my life and kind of changed how I perceived things. Um, became a pastor, uh, during that time as well as a pastor for about 10 years. And then I uh, went to be a professor. I taught philosophy primarily some biblical studies at a university out West where my wife was from. And, uh, yeah. And so through that, one of my professors was Peter Enns mm-hmm. and, so uh, at Westminster, and he and I got to be good friends. We were kind of going through a crisis of faith and and more practically a crisis of losing your jobs over some things you believe in some sense together. We were going through that at the same time. And so uh, we were able to really connect and, and ended up writing a book together, Genesis for Normal People. And then a few years later, that sparked the idea to start a podcast, uh, The Bible for Normal People. So. Yeah, and that's I, what I do now.
0: I will say I I greatly enjoy that podcast. I I listen to one I'm I'm well behind. But there was one the other day that I listened to and I think it's like episode 4 and I think y'all are in the 30s um on monolatry and just and I, something I never heard. Um I also went to Liberty and that was definitely not in the coursework. So or at least not the <laughs> no, coursework. No monolatry. I was in. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh yeah, I Where'd I listened you know? to it twice and I was like, what is this this has got to be made up and then I started researching a little more I was like how have I never why have I never been told this so yeah yeah um, when
1: did you go to Liberty
0: I graduated in 2005 okay Um, yeah me too okay yeah so we must have seen yeah I was there when DeMoss was still ugly and one story and I graduated when it well it was still ugly but it was multiple stories so yeah it's funny
1: we were there at the same time we might have seen each other
0: we may have I was in the the communications department, so um I do remember is it Professor Beck, and that's probably not right. there was a a bald yep. little old da- stout man David Beck would have been a uh,
1: yeah in the religion department,
0: yeah, I remember f- being horrible at that class. I did not apply myself in philosophy, but that was just that that freshman sophomore level philosophy, so yep um so the topic at hand and. Uh, I wanted to discuss biblical inerrancy or a literal interpretation of the Bible. Um, growing up, uh, I'm also from Texas. Grew up in Midland, Texas. Um, went to a independent Baptist church. I was I was raised that you no, know, the Bible is what it is, and it is a hundred percent true, and everything that it is. And if it's not in the Bible, it's sorry, it's just not true. Um, which didn't sit well then, but I didn't know how to voice it, and. And so I was hoping maybe if you could give a difference of, or is there a difference between biblical inerrancy and biblical literalism?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think technically those would be different in the sense that biblical inerrancy is the belief that the Bible is uh, true and all that it affirms. So, uh, that that usually is the way that it's described now. They've added that kind of ending there, truth in all that it affirms. So, we need to know what is the Bible actually affirming, and mm-hmm. then we would say it's true in that way. And uh, so, that's inerrancy. Literalism is uh, actually a, a hermeneutic, or it's a way that we approach the text. So, it's a how we read it. And you could read it literally, and it could be true, or you could read it figuratively, and it could be true. So when we say things like, uh, God is a rock, um, we don't take that literally. We take that figuratively, mm-hmm. and it's true that God is a rock in the way that the Bible is affirming that, the way that it is um, attempting to say that. And so even if you're an inerrantist, um, you would say that a lot. maybe many, I would say many inerrantists wouldn't read the Bible literally. So it doesn't go hand in hand, if that makes sense. So there are some inerrantists who would say that Genesis 1-3 to 3 was meant to be read as allegory, or it wasn't meant to be literally how the world was created. But they're inerrant in the sense that they're saying, but what's true in the way the Bible's affirming it, meaning the way it was intended to be read was figuratively as a mythology or as a story. And so that's true in what it's trying to affirm there. That making sense?
0: It does. It does. Um, I actually wrote down because I knew that you'd written that book, and so I wrote down a few Genesis questions, and, and you brought it up, so I'll just go into it. Um, I, I I spoke with another friend that's currently graduating from Liberty, although externally, and we've gone round and round on it. It has to be six days. Evolution's a, n- not anywhere close to true, and and so when I pressed him on, well, why does Genesis one not work with Genesis 2. He tried to make the case that no, Genesis 1 is the macro version of creation and Genesis 2 is just a zoomed in version, a vignette of day six. I was like, well, how are you, that doesn't make any sense. It just, Mm -hmm. um, so how do you, why do people read it that way?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it really is what we would call, uh, I think, I don't I don't remember what the term is but I think it's called like the hermeneutical spiral, right? So we always when we're reading um the Bible, we're always coming at it with preconceived ideas of what it's supposed to be. And hopefully, you know, the Bible also challenges those preconceived notions, but we're always it's kind of a chicken in the egg, right? So I'm always coming to the Bible with a framework of understanding that I've been taught since I was a kid or that my pastor has taught me or my parents have taught me about how I'm supposed to read this book. And then I'm always going to read it that way. But there may be instances, right? You may be able to point to some instances in your life where it doesn't work. It's sort of like a glitch in the matrix, mm-hmm. right? You're like, wait, wait, that's not, that's not working. So then you shift that model a little bit and now you read the text that way. But it's always this back and forth of where the Bible is shaping how we read it and how we read it is shaping the text. And so, um, you know, for Genesis, uh, often we've been taught if you grew up in traditions like we did, that it has to be X, Y, and Z. It has to be uh, literally true. It has to be historically accurate. And so uh, you will do a lot of things and go through a lot of phases and mental gymnastics to make sure that it upholds that model. And so then, you know, over time, what we learned, uh, right, this guy named Thomas Kuhn wrote this book on paradigm shifts um, in scientific revolutions. And basically what he says is, eventually you have enough data that doesn't fit the model anymore and then you make a you're sort of forced to make a radical shift in how you read it so that was sort of how it happened for me with genesis where you know things like there's uh, clearly two creation stories mm-hmm. and they don't match one has the order of creation one way the other has a, a different way how man and women are men and women are created are different in those texts in the hebrew they use different words for god in those two creation stories and so you can kind of get away with one of those things like you could explain one of those things away um and first for a lot of people they could explain all of it away like your friend right so there's it's compelling that's a good explanation for him or her and you know that that makes sense us, it requires a paradigm shift. Like the data is just not making sense anymore. I need a new model to make sense of everything that's going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's fair. So is that what it was for you then was, was Genesis or was it something else that made you, I guess the things add up to where you had to, to shift away from, from where you were?
1: Yeah. I think Genesis, Jonah, um, Genesis and Jonah probably would be the two texts that yeah created a paradigm shift shift for me in in uh in in seminary we went through Genesis one to three verse by verse, translating the Hebrew, and so every day we were just slogging through that thing one word at a time, and yeah, through that there was just a lot of my eyes were open to a lot of things that were going on in the text,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, I read a quote from, and it's probably a bad quote, but or paraphrased quote uh, from Walter Brueggemann, and and you talked about it a minute ago. Where he said that, um, something along the lines that any passionate interpretation of Scripture, and and I would hope that that's how everyone reads it, uh, is going to be shot through with my own self vested interest, and um, and so how, if I'm if I'm reading it that way, and I'm allowed to read it that way, how do I make sure that what I am thinking I'm reading is anywhere close to correct?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things. One, I think that's the really importance of what I would call theological humility and openness to understanding we could always be wrong Mm -hmm. and reading the text in community. So, you know, I'm reading right now, Will Gaffney's introduction to womanist biblical interpretation, and she's, has a different take on some of these texts I'm learning from her I'm learning from my Sunday school class every Sunday I'm learning from my faith community and my pastor I'm learning from uh, conversations that we have on the Bible for normal people so being in community is really important because if it's just me and Jesus and me and my Bible and I can make it mean whatever I want, then that becomes a dangerous way of reading the text. But if I'm open to that accountability from my religious community, um, where I say, hey, tell me if I'm really off base here. And another way of accountability is church tradition. So there's a huge library of how biblical scholars, church fathers, monks, um, the patristics read these texts. And I always like to sort of try to trace some lineage back to, uh, the church fathers or, you know, finding it somewhere and saying, Hey, I'm not out, I'm not out to lunch on this. I'm not doing it for my own ego. This seems like a valid way of approaching things.
0: Was, so circling back to that, was, was a literal quote unquote, the way Liberty would read, well, I, I, that's, Liberty's not a monolith, but you know what I mean, um, (laughs) Uh, would would infer that the scriptures have to be read? Was that always the the case? Uh, up until uh, even my great great grandfather, like, was there a, a time in, in recent memory that people were like, "No, it is fine that he thinks that and she thinks that, and and we're both still good."
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I mean, there's always been heresy, right? So we always want the. It's often been very politically charged in, in those senses, but yeah, as far back as. In the 4th and 5th centuries, uh, the, the early Church Fathers, and I forget which one, they would have basically said the literal reading is the most infantile reading. That's, that's the most basic of readings. Um, we, we really want to move beyond that. And mm-hmm. he would talk about there's several levels of reading, several figurative levels, several symbolic levels of reading, and those are more rich. That's where we really find what it means to be the Church in that reading. And then... Uh, So that would have been more probably of the common way of reading it, more symbolically or more, uh, and and frankly, I think the New Testament does that with the Hebrew Bible. Um, I don't think the New Testament reads the Hebrew Bible literally in that sense. Um, So when Matthew quotes Hosea and says, out of Egypt, I've called my son, I don't think Matthew's following what we would call a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Hosea. Um, it would have been ripping it out of context and applying it to the life of Jesus, trying to make sense of, reinterpreting it for this theological moment. Um, so we have it in the New Testament. We definitely have it in the Church Fathers. We have St. Augustine saying things like, and I forget what uh, I should have brushed up on my patristics, but uh, <laughs> you know, saying things like, hey, we're going to come up against different interpretations, so pick the one that's most likely to lead to you loving. Your neighbor, that's mm. probably the more accurate interpretation, um, which I love. And then you have John Calvin up and even to the you know sixteenth century, who says things like, uh, you know, the way God speaks to us, he speaks to us like a baby. He he's lisping to us. I mean, he, and so he's going to accommodate himself to how we understand the world, uh, which would be in our own context, which easily lends to things like understanding Genesis. Um, in the context of the ancient Near East, that God's not talking over people's heads and bringing in 21st century science to these ancient people who would have understood none of it. I find that to be, you know, C.S. Lewis's word, chronological snobbery. I find that to be, like a lot, a little snobbish of us to be like, oh, yeah, well, the church couldn't read Genesis right for 2,000 years until we had the science. But and now, yeah, we've got now it. Now we go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look how good we so are. So I don't know
1: if that's a long, that's a long way of an- maybe answering that question. But I don't, I think our modern way of reading the Bible really comes in the 20th century uh, with um, the Schofield Reference Bible and the modernist debates between Princeton Theological Seminary and uh, some other constituents where they define themselves as fundamentalists and that's where the modern evangelical movement comes out and and that cements the quote right but for hundreds of years before that that wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been exactly that way
0: you touched on it a minute ago so why then do uh i guess fundamentalist evangelical christians to use it a, a, probably a poor term why did why did so many of my peers try to force the Bible to be a, a medical text or a history text or a science text when it has, I, I mean, I don't think it has any business being that considering they thought the earth was flat there. They didn't know what germs were. Um, you know what I mean? Why do they, Well,
1: it was really, really good to have it. Right. I mean, I, I really liked being an evangelical and I really liked being able to read the Bible that way because yeah. it felt, it felt really safe. Um, we had all the answers. It, it was all right there. Um, and so there's not a lot of uncertainty. There's not a lot of risk involved. And I think as humans, we, we're really drawn to that. Um, we like a God that plays it safe and gives us this rule book. And if we just followed the rule book, if we just followed A, B, and C, we would get to D, E, and F. And um, I, yeah, I, it's very compelling.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, it is easier, I will say the last 10 years, basically since I left Liberty um, and and became a dad, I started reading things differently. Um, I think it's odd how, well, at least in my case, having kids makes me view uh, divinity differently, um, especially when you think of God as a you know patriarchal kind of building. Um, so what would you say to people that say, well, if, if you take away the historical accuracy of Genesis or you take away the historical accuracy of Jonah, which I also... To me, that's always been a metaphor, and and you talked about infantile. It, it makes sense to explain it. You no, know, he was in the fish's belly to a six year old, but you and I both know that's just not that's it's just not going to work. Um, I think it's I think it's a good metaphor. It's not a right. It, it's more of a parable, I think, but I'm probably mm-hmm. wrong. Um, I don't no, know. No, you should.
1: I, I did. The, I'll just plug the. I did an episode on Jonah on the Bible for normal people. And it's a fascinating book. I, I love the book. I think it's so rich and illustrative. And I think it's a, I think it takes away from that when you try to read it literally. So.
0: Oh, really? Um, Talk a little bit yeah. about that. Well, not a whole podcast vers- version, but um, yeah, I haven't, that's probably after the Monolatry episode and that's again, as far <laughs> as I've been.
1: Yeah. So I, I did a solo podcast on that just because I do, I love um, the book a- and I follow the themes of the book about uh, Jonah's descent. And how poetic, you know, chapter one, we have this, uh, it's, it's just a great illustration of how, uh, literary these biblical books can be. So chapter one is the deconversion of Jonah and the conversion of the pagans. So we begin with Jonah being told to stand up and go, arise and go. Mm -hmm. And instead he arises and flees. And then the word yarad, which means to go down in Hebrew is repeated again and again and again, because when Jonah disobeys God, he goes down. And he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes, you know, he goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down to the boat. Then he goes down into the boat. Then he goes to the bottom of the boat. Then he goes to sleep, which is like a metaphorical going down further. And then he goes out into the sea and gets thrown over. So he's still going down. And then he goes down into the belly of the fish. And then he goes down to the bottom of creation. And we start getting really poetic in chapter two to the point that I would argue he gets shut out of creation. So it's reminiscent of Psalm 139, which says, you know, where can I flee from your presence? Mm-hmm. And in Psalm thirty one thirty nine, it's this really uh, comforting psalm of where can I go from your presence? Everywhere you are there. Well, that becomes a nightmare if you're trying to run away from yeah. God. Yeah, I don't want to. So Jonah to... becomes this like Alice in Wonderland nightmare of what happens if you want to flee God. Well, if God is everywhere, you have to die. You have to be shut out of creation. And so there's Genesis language there of of creation. And if you don't read Genesis, understanding how the ancient Near East thought of the world, then that poetic part of Jonah makes no sense. And you can see different translations trying to make sense of like seaweed wrapping around my head. And how is Jonah seeing all these things from the belly of the fish? And there's this ancient, Mm I think Maimonides or one of these ancient rabbis, Rambam maybe, uh, says that, well, the, the he could see through the fish's eyes, right? Because they were trying to be literal about that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, you know, so there's this there's this going down and he gets shut out of creation. Chapter two is actually a pastiche. So the prayer of Jonah is actually just a bunch of psalms knitted together. So you could actually, there's about 15 psalms and he just takes parts of them and puts them in Jonah's mouth. And the prayer is actually just these psalms that he's reciting. And that's to tie Israel's story into the story of Jonah, Israel is Jonah. that's really the point here huh. and And so the psalms you know did Jonah literally just memorize all these psalms and pray them in the belly of the fish? Well, that's missing the point. You do that because you're trying to tie Israel's story into Jonah's story, and then anyway, he goes down all the way, and then the climax of the book is chapter two, verse four. I don't know if that's in English or Hebrew, but in chapter two, verse four. It says, and then God raised my life up from the pit. And that's the first up word we have since the very first verse when Mm -hmm. God says, arise, go up, get up and go. And instead he went down and then God raises his life up from the pit. So there's a redemptive climactic moment, which I think is what Jesus means when he says uh, the sign of Jonah, just like Jonah was in the the belly of the fish three days. So will I be? Well, it's because there's this really impactful, redemptive, moment in the Jonah story that Jesus is talking about. And anyway, then we have these creation language. He spits them up on dry land. And just like in Genesis, there's a new creation. Jonah's a new creation. And then we have what seems like Sukkot, the, the celebration of Sukkot happening at the end of the book, because there's a booth there all of a sudden out in mm-hmm. the middle, outside the city. And yeah. Anyway, that, I don't, again. So, yeah. That's- so,
0: but I mean, the difference is the way that a, a literal, a fundamentalist would read the Bible is no, this is legit. He's in the belly. We're doing this. As opposed to when Jesus is talking to people, they would know what it meant because they mm-hmm. would, they would know the same way I said that the room is, you know, that shirt is cool. That they would know that I don't, you you know, that I don't mean cold. So, right. um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, sorry, uh, I went off
1: on a little Jonah rant. No, there, but... um,
0: I'm actually, I'm I'm gonna have to read it now because I don't know Jonah that well, and um, you're actually, I, I have my laptop up on a stack of six Bibles to get you up to level off the coffee table, so I, I have many different versions nice. to go with. Um, one of which is a Schofield, which was given to me. Uh, unfair question. What's yeah, uh, what's the best translation of the Bible? Oh. Very Um, unfair.
1: Yeah, I don't know (laughs) if there's a best. I I think using multiple translations is often helpful because you can see the decisions that were made. And you can ask the question, why would they translate it this way? I I use the NRSV for my New Testament reading. And I actually use the Jewish Publications Society, the JPS translation, uh, when I read the Hebrew Bible. Hmm. And um, so those are the two two that I use. But, um, you know. Sure.
0: So, and this, this might not, if this, if this question is wrong, just we'll do one of those humility things you were talking about earlier. Um, Well, it might, I might be overthinking it. So one of the things that's bothered me for the last year or so is, is, is 2 Timothy 3.16, because that's what you hear a lot when you start questioning inerrancy or or literal uh, interpretations where it says, you know, all scriptures, God breathed and Etc. cetera. And, and so here's my rub, and there's a bunch of guys that get together, get some lunch, and decide that Scripture is in it, and they make sure that they include that this one book of this one verse that says that the Scripture that we said is in the Scripture is definitely in the Scripture, and trust me, it's in the Scripture. And I don't know what to do with that.
1: Well, interestingly, that when that was written— there was no New Testament at that time. So that would have been a letter, right? Mm-hmm. So Second Timothy would have been a letter. So when Paul writes that letter to Timothy, he's clearly not talking about the 27 books that we have now as the New Testament. He would be talking at most about what we would call the Old Testament.
0: Oh. So there's no... So the New there, Testament is up for grabs then?
1: Well, in, in that verse, it couldn't possibly be talking about the New Testament because there was no... New Testament when Paul wrote that letter, like it's literally just a letter. At that point, there is no, huh. there is no other books necessarily. There may have been a collection of writings that have been passed around, but um, certainly it wouldn't have included books after 2 Timothy that were written after because they wouldn't have been ex- in existence yet. Um, and we do a lot with that verse because the word I'm pretty sure I, you're stretching my memory here, but I'm pretty sure the, the word there for scripture is just grafata, or the writings. It's not any special term of saying these holy, sacred books that are in our canon. They're just the writings. Um,
0: so would that apply all, all to, of, to everything, the intertestamentary writings, the Apocrypha? Would it would it apply to the, the, well, the Gnostic stuff? Well, our Catholic stuff? brothers
1: and sisters would think so, hmm. in some sense. And and maybe our Eastern Orthodox as well. And So they have, you know, our huh. Catholic brothers and sisters have different books. Um, in some sense, so they would be called, of course, Protestants would call them deuterocanonical. Yeah, not really canonical, just deuterocanonical. So
0: yeah, uh, embarrassing, embarrassing. Fun fact is, I found out that the Catholic Bible was different than my Bible when I downloaded the Bible app, and I was like, sure, give me the Catholic Bible, and I started scrolling through. I was like, wait, why these aren't in the right order? And I was, I was genuinely. <laughs> genuinely confused. Um, still, still probably am. Um, so we just went through the whole, you saw it everywhere, the 500th anniversary of, of Luther. And I know Luther had issues with specific books in the Bible. Um, and, and so from, and this will show my lack of knowledge. So from what I understand, the whole Protestant Reformation was getting away from the the Vatican or the Pope being the only person that could tell me what scripture meant. And uh, the the thing that I've come to, I think realize is, is I think, and and there's, is there an argument that says that we have at least in Western Christianity replaced the Pope with the books of the Bible being what they are. And this is, this is what it is. So sit right with it.
1: Yeah, I I think, and I wouldn't say it's even the Western Christianity or Protestants, I think it's evangelicals in particular, because like the Wesleyan tradition would have what's called the Wesley quadrilateral. So they would say they their faith is built on these four anchors, scripture is one, tradition, reason, and experience. And that, that that's where um, their faith is built on those four. And I would say most Protestant traditions would have something similar to that. Um I think Richard Rohr calls it a the tricycle. He would have three um, there: tradition, experience, and uh, scripture, and combining reason and experience there. But so what happened, I think, within evangelicalism is in a way to uh, in a way to we sort of cut our legs out from under us in some sense because we kept saying, well, we have to put all our eggs in this one basket. But the problem with that is now, if you find anything unsettling with that one basket you're in trouble Mm -hmm. because you just spent a hundred years talking about dismantling the other three anchors you could have been using (laughs) as helpful ways to guide your faith yeah so um so I, i think i would yeah i would question i don't think it's in the western christian faith or protestantism i think it's um evangelicalism specifically where we sort of put all of our, it has to be just this one book because it's infallible and our traditions are fallible and our experiences can be fallible and reason can be fallible. Whoops, we can only interpret the Bible through our own experience and our own reason and our own tradition. So, uh uh-oh, like now we just spent a 100 years talking about how those were unreliable. Mm -hmm. That's the only way we can approach the Bible. There is no God's eye view of the Bible. Um, there's no contextless way I can read the Bible. I can only read it as a, you know, white American male who grew up evangelical, <laughs> Southern Baptist, Charismatic, Presbyterian in mm-hmm. 2017. Yeah, I, I can't read the God's eye version of yeah. the Bible.
0: Do um do other and you might not know do do other, I guess countries or faith cultures struggle with reading the Bible this way? So say it's read in. You know, China or Japan or Australia—do they struggle the same way that that our our membership and our church body seems to with this argument about about this, or or are they? It's just not even on the radar.
1: I can't speak for all cultures, but I do know in the UK, uh, inerrancy would have not been—that's not real. Evangelicalism in the UK would look really different just because they're not so caught up on iner- inerrancy as mm-hmm. a as important. Thing. And again, most worldwide faith, although evangelicalism is really exploding in certain parts of the world, you, you would normally find Catholics or uh, Episcopalian, you know, the Anglican communion, and they wouldn't uh, put nearly the emphasis that we do on things like inerrancy or even the Bible. Again, they would have that three-legged or four-legged stool on which they would rest, um, which I think is, is probably a lot healthier.
0: Sure. Um, a couple... A couple of just quick questions and then i'll i'll give you back the rest of your evening i i had promised to be as brief as possible um so what so i i polled friends on facebook on the on the twitters on all the places and and i asked for some of their questions and i i promised i'd ask someone that knew more than me it doesn't mean you'll know the answer but that's that's okay um and so someone basically said well you know seth if you're questioning this it means that you don't have faith in the Bible, that you're you need the Bible. And by the Bible, I think they meant Jesus and something else. Um and so how would you respond to someone saying, you know, you're you're needing something else to crutch up or prop up the Bible to have some form of a faith?
1: Hmm. I mean, I usually what I do is I would ask a lot more questions to try to understand. But I if I can make assumptions. I think I used to get that question a lot. And I think the assumption there is that there's the idea that we can read the Bible purely, that there's a pure way of reading the Bible, right? And it's just, it's clear, it's plain. And so, you know, I I used to get the argument, oh, I don't interpret the Bible, I just read it. Well, what do you think reading is? I mean, yeah, Um, you
0: can't not.
1: (laughs) Right. And so, you know, that's the idea of, um, yeah, you can't just have the Bible because unfortunately we're human beings and we're trapped by our language. And when you use language, you're interpreting. Um if you read the Bible in English, you're not only interpreting, you're interpreting someone else's interpretation because they had to translate it and they had to make choices because not every word is exactly transferable. If it was if it was, it would just be the same language. So Yeah. Um, so I don't think you can escape—it would be nice if we could escape those problems, those challenges, but by just kind of putting your head in the sand and pretending they're not there, I wouldn't call that being more faithful. I would call that maybe being more blind to our own—I'd uh, much rather put our put our presuppositions and put our biases and filters out there and then have those be shaped over time to be more faithful maybe to— um, how we how we see Jesus interacting or living or things like that. Sure.
0: Something else that someone gave me is the scriptures have to be inerrant because Jesus attributed Genesis 2:24 and he said that these were the words of God. And so because he said that Genesis was the word of God, it has to be taken literally. And I'm not even certain that that sentence makes sense, but that's a quote. Hmm. And I don't know yeah. where he said it, he attributes it, but basically saying, you know, this creation story of, of, of here is, is the word of God. And, and, and so, but.
1: Well, one, I would, I'm curious as to where Jesus quotes that and calls it the word of God. Let me see if I can um, find
0: it. I don't, it's a, it's a, it's a two, house of cards.
1: I think, I think too, though, I think the real assumption is that if it's the word of God, it has to be inerrant. Why do we make that assumption?
0: Yeah, well, I yeah, I don't think I do, but um, that's just what they asked. So, um,
1: no, no, Seth, you need to an answer. Answer I, it now.
0: No, can't do it. Um, uh, this is my last question. Uh, well, no, I have two. So, something that bothers me is is in is in Kings and Chronicles, um, and someone else asked as well. In one of them, God takes a census of everyone, and in the next one, it's King David. So it doesn't make any sense. I mean, from what I understand of Kings and Chronicles, they're basically overviews of the same time period, correct? So, that seems to be fairly somebody did not edit that well.
1: Well, no, okay. See, so I, I that's where my, you know, my um my that's where my atheist friends would say they'd say, "Oh, this you know, when I was in seminary, I would read these guys who um who would say things like, oh, these were just sloppy editors. And that would have been more of an argument in the you know, early 20th century or whatever. These biblical scholars are who are so, so much smarter than these biblical editors who were just sloppy. I mean, who puts one creation story right next to the other one when they don't even agree? Right. right? <laughs> well, first of all, you're missing the glaring point, which is we have four Gospels that are stacked back to back to back to back, and they don't agree either.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't think
1: that's sloppy editing. Um, I'm much more interested in why do these authors put these books back to back to back to back? Why do they put these two creation accounts back to back? I don't think it's sloppy editing. I think it's intentional. And I'm much more interested in the question of why. Why would they do this? Because um, I don't – I, you know, that's what I, I think – I think you fall into a trap of, of – calling it sloppy editing or whatever you would want to do. And and so for me, the, the more interesting question is, what's going on in the community or in the author that leads them to rewrite these stories or to change these details? And for Kings and Chronicles, it's, it's very interesting that a lot of modern biblical, biblical scholarship at this point would say, well, they're written for two different communities at two different times for two very different purposes. And so, like, have you ever read two histories of the... Uh, of American history, or if you go back, like the histories of the Peloponnesian war or whatever these are, you're never going to get two accounts that are identical. Right. One, because you just can't, but two, that's not even in the ancient world. Why would you want to do that? That's boring. You would want to shape it according to some agenda. What, what's the point? Why, Why does this matter? And so Kings is written to answer the question in the exile. Why are we in exile? help me ex- explain how the chosen people of God who are supposed to have a davidic king on the throne forever are in exile explain that to me and the king the the authors and editors of the king as uh, you know saga are explaining that so if you read kings the kings are all terrible they're mm-hmm. awful they're so bad and in fact in that one king manasseh is the worst of the worst he's scum and at the end of it he doesn't repent and so it's answering the question for the community well here it's because we got scumbag kings of course that's why we were in an exile chronicles is written post exile and these people have come back into the land and they're wondering are we still god's people are we still connected like
0: mm-hmm.
1: or are we are we cast off forever which if you want to connect the ancient world to the modern world in that context You use a genealogy. Well, lo and behold, Chronicles begins with like the most boring section of Scripture. It's like 40 chapters of genealogy, right? It's just, why? It's because the questions that community is asking are very different than the questions of the exile. And so, in Chronicles, Manasseh's story ends with repentance. Kings, Manasseh doesn't repent. Chronicles, Manasseh does. I'm not interested in the question of, Oh, these are sloppy ancient editors who didn't know what they were doing. There's just too much intricacies of the Bible to for me to to think that's compelling. I'm more interested in well, why would they make them different? It's because they're writing to different audiences for different reasons. And so now I read Kings through that lens of oh, this is a community of people who are trying to understand what's happening to them that they've been promised this. uh, They they have this promise that seems to be getting broken at this point. How do we explain that? And then Chronicles, we come back and we're wondering what's left of all this. Yeah. Are we still God's people? So anyway, not huh. to go on that rant.
0: No, but. no, that's good. It's, I like it. Um, In in fear of another rant, I, I do have another question. And it's something that struck me today in, in research for a, a future interview um, about whether or not Mary is a virgin, which is a, a huge question. And I'm not going to ask you that. Um, Thank but, you. But in the book, in the book, he says that scripturally there's very little basis for Mary being from the you know from the, the the line of David, and it's actually Joseph that is. And I haven't finished the book, but what what would you do with because that seems like a big crucial um, if it's it's a view on the incarnation. But um, how? How can that? Now that that the blinders have been pulled off, and I've reread a few pieces of scripture, I'm like, yeah, well, okay, this is, well, there went Christmas. Um, so, so how do, how does, how can someone like me research that in a, in a way that, that 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 doesn't take away something or that that adds to the conversation?
1: Well. I'm not sure I can at one I, once we go into the new Testament, I'm in, oh, over my head a little bit.
0: So, okay. um, me too.
1: So my, my background is, is in Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I would say, I think the more important things are to, to, to be open to saying, if God wants to write a book, God can write it any way that God wants. Mm-hmm. And so, why questioning those assumptions of why do we have, why does it have to look like this? Why can't Kings and Chronicles have different agendas? Why can't Jonah be a parable? Why can't Jesus, why can't Matthew write? So there's this uh, story and I forget who it was. I should know this, but um, someone wrote a book in the eighties that basically argued that Matthew was Midrash, that it wasn't meant to be a historically accurate, but it's for the Jewish community and it's, really connecting Jesus to his historical roots and to his Jewish roots. And it's really Midrash. It's mythological in a lot of ways. And um, he got in a lot of trouble for that. But, uh, you know, I'm more interested in those questions and just saying, well, this is the book that we have. And faith really for me is saying this is the book that God would want us to have not trying to make it into another kind of book that we wish God had given us.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and so that's what I felt like. I felt like a lot of my upbringing was using all of this energy to clean up the, you know, like put lipstick on the pig. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, we're just trying to present because we're embarrassed by this Bible. And so I can't talk to my atheist friends about a Bible that has two different accounts and changes some historical details in it. Why, why would I, instead of, um, embracing the book we have and then diving into the intricacies and the beauty and the interesting curiosities about this whole thing and asking those questions of, Hmm, why is that there? I wonder. And most of the time when I ask that question, I end up with a very satisfying answer. Like, Oh, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Um, well I will, I will end there. Um, so, give you a chance to to plug whatever you'd like to plug. I, I, I would I would recommend people greatly check out the Bible for normal people. I have been enjoying it. Um, I recently found it about a month ago it was recommended from a friend. I'm a little upset that it's the only Bible ordained podcast on the internet. Um, I don't know that I'm qualified to have that qualification, but there certainly must must be others. Um, <laughs> but where would you point people to um, as they? As, they, as many of our generation is, is questioning things, where would you point people to, and, and then how can they, can they reach out to, to people like yourself?
1: Yeah, so um, we definitely I would point people to the podcast, The Bible for Normal People. Um, where we, The goal really is to take top biblical scholarship and break it down for everyday people. So we get some of our nerdy friends, um, PhDs at Harvard and Duke and these places, and just ask them to explain in everyday language. How, how should we read the Bible? What is it? What do we do with it? And yes, yeah, so we'll be launching season two of that here shortly. And uh, in, in addition to that, you know, we have a Patreon community, uh, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. We have a Slack group with about 200 people in it, mm. and they're just having conversations every day back and forth about um, these kind of questions that that they're wrestling with. You know, for us, it's about having a community. And by us, I mean, Peter Enns and myself, my co host having a place where it's okay to ask these questions, where we can do that without risking our community of faith or our friendships or our families, where if we bring them up, we might get ostracized or at least get that raised eyebrow of, uh, now you're kind of suspect for having these doubts and questions. And so definitely the Bible for Normal People and the biblefornormalpeople.com. So Pete ends, writes a lot of articles, um, again, with this audience in mind. So... Definitely check those out.
0: Fantastic. Well, I will. Uh, I will include those links in the show notes. And um, again, thank you for your time this evening, Jared. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you so much to everyone uh, that listened today. To everyone that has supported us in any way, be it Twitter, Facebook, the iTunes reviews, uh, both the negative and the positive ones. Any feedback is so helpful uh, to those of you that have donated in any amount, I can't tell you how much that helps. Those funds help to make all of this happen. Read an awful lot about you. People say there's a facade around you. They say the fact you never speak makes it difficult to just believe. They ask me if I ever doubt. If I ever think I'm better off without. They say they'd rather die alone. They live believing in a ghost. Yeah. I always said, though he slay me, I will trust him. That's Job 13, 15, though no, it pains me, I will love him. My friends say he's gone and I should curse him and die. Another bell toes, and I see another hearse going by. But I ain't inside of it. I don't feel no sense of entitlement. I may not deserve to ask these questions, but I got them. Why do bad things happen to good people? Ain't one of them. But when good people suffer, how should I look at him? You see, I'm just a man. I wasn't here to see the east cross the land. To join the West and fight the.